All right, welcome to Now This Is Podcasting. I'm your host, Connor, and I'm here uh, once again with a special guest. Kiefer's here, and we're going to talk about Ready Player Two. Welcome back to the podcast. What's going on, beautiful people? It's Dad by Day here. Yeah, another uh, our second installment in our uh, collaboration of our two channels. I'm yep. very excited. So, like, like I said, talking about Ready Player Two, which is the sequel to Ernest Klein's <laughs> Ready Player One. Oh, sorry, I threw up a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this was released in 2022. Uh Ready Player Two features all of our favorite characters like Wade, Artemis, H, and the Asian character. Uh, Klein continues his (laughs) 80s nostalgia extravaganza, uh, this time with a twist. He has pop culture references from other decades. Um, The the next door neighbor. (laughs) um, Including The Matrix and two others. Uh, If you've listened to our review on Ready Player One, you won't be very surprised with what we have to say about this one. It suffers from a lot of the same problems like uh, the narrative... um, it's writing style, character development, and world building. Um, so yeah, let's get first impressions out. Uh, what do you think of this book, Kiefer? Um, after being like a fan of the first one, the first time I read it, I was very disappointed the first time that I read this book. It seemed like the characters like weren't the same, especially especially Wade. I thought he was way different. Um, even just like the first time reading through this book, I found like. I was asking a whole lot more questions like why are they doing this like how, this this doesn't make any sense like continuity wise or chronologically there was just a lot of a lot more things that I was confused about and just left disappointing and there was definitely some like you know journeys through the muck and the mire that of the like throughout this book that just it just is such a slog to get through right. that are not fun to read or listen to uh when I think I think I probably gave this like a 4 or 5 in my own head the first time I read it it was I was not a fan yeah I like that you bring up continuity because this book doesn't feel like it's a continuation of the first book except for that it just picks up where the first book left off it but there's no continuity between some of the characters it feels like especially Wade kind of narratively changes yeah when the book needs drama at certain points so it's very like you said it's it's like you stopping and asking like why is this happening not because it's like clever writing or you miss something it's just like it, there's no consistency to the book so you end up stopping and asking yourself like wait what is the motivation here why is this happening and it's just because it's like not very good writing well not it, necessarily because it's not a hard story to track it definitely doesn't help that he wrote this second book like what over a decade after the first one because he did uh, the other one in like oh nine or something right uh, uh 2000 uh, yeah 2011 so it's nine years nine later. years yeah, about a decade, but but yeah. still a decade later between the person writing this story and what is going on in their lives in the world or whatever is going to make it hard to transition how that person has changed and not affecting the way that his characters changed and right. i think that he absolutely did not do that his characters changed with his personality and his beliefs in 2020 right right it feels like he didn't read ready player one before he started writing this yeah yeah and and there is a little bit of a disconnect with i think how the characters feel i want to move on into world building that was one of our issues in the first book it felt like it was hard to really get a sense of the scope and scale of the real world because it's not really elaborated on much and i think that um one of the characters that kind of helps that is uh, artemis or samantha she's become kind of a philanthropist do-gooder uh, she uses her earnings and winnings from the Halliday contest to travel around, make the world a better place. You know, she's very like socially and consciously aware and she's trying to do something. And I think through that character, you get a better idea of the state of the world, at least compared to the first book, more of a bright spot than I was expecting. To they have. they do spend more words talking about the state of the world <laughs> in the second book. I still don't 
understand who's at war with who, how many of the population, like, I don't get a sense of, like, they still just do nothing but talk about how everybody's in the Oasis all the time. So it's like, whatever time they spend with Samantha going around with the poor people is totally overshadowed by the amount of people that they're constantly talking about being in here, so like, being in the Oasis. So it's like, how big are these people's problems really when they still find time for 80% of them to be logged in all the time? Like, there's the part in there when... The only reason she ever uses an ONI headset, which we haven't talked about yet, but if you've read the book, then you'll understand what I'm getting at. And she puts the little headset on the little, I'm assuming, I don't know, I don't know, mid-African child, wherever the famine is. It could be in the middle of America at this point, for all we know, because we just don't know. Seems like some impoverished child, yeah. Yeah. She puts the ONI headset on them, so that way the other users can experience how it feels to be impoverished and exploited. And I'm like aren't you exploiting that person's situation to further your own cause? Like, you're right. Like, yeah. that was one of the things I thought. So it's like, yeah, it's great that you're doing this, but your whole high and mighty attitude about it is my problem with her. Yeah, I can I can tend to agree with that. But let's move on to the O&I then. We discover it after Wade has completed the original like holiday challenge. And there's a small Easter egg on the Easter egg letting him know there's like a file or somewhere, some hidden room that has this O&I technology, which is essentially like a, a device you put on, it scans your brain, and all of a sudden now you, you can experience the, the Oasis physically. You can touch, smell, taste things now. It's not just feedback on a haptic system. It's like you, you are literally feeling it. And another kind of wrinkle into that is people can wear the, the O&I and upload their own experiences. And so I, I really like the idea of it. Yeah, the, that was in, a cool idea. In terms of it being kind of an exercise in empathy. So I kind of like the idea of Samantha putting it on the kid. That way people can understand other people's situations, what it's like to be this race or, and I, or this yeah, sexuality. I understand the benefit of it. Yeah. It's just like it seems hypocritical, yeah. which is my problem with her characters. I feel like a lot of the, not a lot of the time, I feel like there are definitely times when she comes off hypocritical and she's supposed to be like, the most relatable, normal thinking kind of character in this book. Right. I think, like I said, there's a lot of stuff in the first book that I, like, conceptually I like. Like, conceptually, I kind of like the idea of the O&I and, and how it can be used and, and kind of other other functions it can have outside of experiencing someone else's body as they, like, go skydiving or surfing. It feels like there are much deeper, more, uh, like practical uses for it don't give could, him any ideas dude. He, he is not equipped yeah. to write a third book where we delve into the the how your brain would really work with yeah. this i just think I, I like the idea of using it as like an, a tool for empathy yeah i think that's interesting but i don't we shouldn't talk about that quite yet right because we have other reasons why that's a better thing to talk about one of my problems with how the like like i said conceptually i like the o and i I don't think it functions well in this book because it really feels like Ernest Klein was worried that he didn't have anything interesting to write about the Oasis. So he needed to create some new thing that uh, that exists in the Oasis. And man, does he spend, they spend so much time talking about the new hotness and how it works in the Oasis. They spend a lot of time talking about yeah, it. And, 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 it's, and, and it's, unnecessarily pronouncing acronyms kills me. They call it the Earl. Come on. The, they call them Revs and Sims. It's like, dude, we don't. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. don't need to do this to me. It's supposed to sound cool to the gaming community, and it absolutely does not. Yeah, I I didn't love it either. Nobody's like, oh, he said Earl. Yeah, um, I I just don't like how it functions in this book. It felt like he it only existed to add a new exciting thing. In. It was a plug to try to speed up the rock rolling down the hill that yeah. he had started when he pushed it down at the beginning of Ready Player One. When I think all you had to do was 
actually have them do something interesting in the, in oasis, the oasis using the oasis you created this great great world stop making people play freaking arcade games yeah. in the oasis stop yeah. doing it to me yeah so that that's my that's my issue with how it functions in the story is it's just kind of a new thing for them to experience yeah. but it doesn't really make the story any more exciting and it, it does add a vehicle for some new problems which is which is fine some of those being, and I want to talk about this, I guess, a little bit before we get a little bit later, because it's going to have some part to it, is one of the things they talked about specifically was the SOS, right? The synaptic overload syndrome. And it automatically logs you out if you hit 12 hours of use in a, in a day. Now, everybody in this world seems to fully believe that Halliday's science, his hardware engineering and all that stuff was completely safe. And it was totally legit, which means that it's 12 hours that was probably a limit based on the the weakest person, right? Because SOS is going to affect different people at different times, but everybody trusts his science and they trust his engineering. So this 12-hour thing really got me when it started not making sense later on in the book. Because yeah, everybody yeah. everybody's like, oh, no, it must be good. And like they, they spend a lot of time talking about how they've done their testing on it and it's super safe and blah, blah, blah. But then... When it's convenient for the story, now all of a sudden this 12-hour time limit that Halliday himself has built into this thing is not good enough. And I'm like, no, I'm calling BS on that. Yeah, it, it would probably, I mean, the same way like there are medications that are regulated and there's like a minimum dose and a lethal dose and stuff. And so the dose you probably get is good enough to like get the job done. And like the lethal dose is just like, hey, this is you're starting to reach that threshold. It's just like a safety you put on it, you know, like that's part of regulating things. So 12 hours is probably just like... You could probably go a couple more, but to be safe, but we're, not even we're cutting because off at 12, all of the people know? that have ever died from it died at like 13, 14 hours. That's what I'm saying. So it should be a, a lower hour limit on it. Then if people are starting to be affected at 12 hours, then then it should this should be a safety built in where it cuts off at like 10. But then. that's what you're saying. That people way you're not start being affected yeah. at the 12 hour mark, which does not happen later. Right. Again, this is just more of the inconsistencies. And, in this yeah, book. sorry. He's going to correct me a lot when I'm going to rant about this stuff because I'm not nearly as eloquent when in my construction of my notes i just have a whole bunch of questions in my in my notes about like why were they doing this this is a problem i had this doesn't make any sense that's he's going to steer me back on track a lot this time but no i i appreciate bringing it up because that is a struggle with this book is like it's just i keep asking myself like wait what yeah I just keep saying that over and over again and i think we can move on to one of the characters that i keep saying wait what about so often is wade <laughs> wade Wade's in this book. Yeah, he is oh, a man. little bit. I totally forgot. We're gonna get into another character. We're gonna, we'll we'll talk more about Halliday later, but uh, I think Wade is really supposed to meant to kind of mirror Hall Halliday in this book. They they both kind of start out as like these beloved heroes. You know, one is the creator of the Oasis. One is the 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 boy who like stopped IOI and but he keeps the Oasis like available and attainable for everyone instead of it being like corporatized and everything like that. So he's like a hero and he has this big kind of fall from grace where he's acting out on social media and he starts being very creepy with these robes and he's, he's using them in a, a really gross way to kind of invade people's privacy. He's no longer like very kind to Samantha. Like his character is, is totally different than the way he is from the first book. And again, it's not like earned. It's not revealed in a, a nuanced way to make me feel like, oh, like what an interesting reveal that Wade, maybe he wasn't as good as we thought he was. No, it they just, just wrote him and had him start doing terrible stuff that any person would be like, oh yeah, dude, you you turn into kind of a douchebag. But not even him just acting poorly. It's his character throughout the whole process and how he participates in all of the challenges as we go. Like he was, 
he was smart, he was thoughtful, he was self-sufficient, he was careful, he was he was able to find a problem and plan around it. Like he planned that whole heist from IOI in the first one. He doesn't do anything to that com- level of complexity oh, in no. this second book. Like he is not thoughtful. He is uh, rash. He is selfish. Um, he doesn't think before he speaks. He is has so many opposite qualities of what his original character had. And I think that that speaks to what I said earlier when it's like, dude, there was a decade between your who you were when you wrote the first book and who you were when you wrote the second book. Your characters can't reflect that. No, no. Because and they absolutely do. I think it's only a few years have passed since the completing of the challenge, no, the, the releasing of the, the O&I. second book starts. That's like that's right when it when the first one ends. The f- the um the second challenge starts three years after they release the O and I because the O and I needed to get to a certain um usage limit before the challenge revealed itself. That's what I'm saying. So there's the the story kind of spans three years from the first book to this book. There shouldn't be that much of a change. But all but a lot, and a lot of the dumb stuff that he did happened at the very beginning when he was first in charge, like when he went right, around right. killing all the trolls or whatever with his robes. Like a lot of the bad stuff happened at the beginning when Samantha broke up with him. That's at the beginning. Like it's funny you talked about in our <laughs> review of Ready Player One. Like what if a toxic cod player got the robes and won the cod? They would do That's exactly what, they would what do. he did. <laughs> they would do exactly what they did. I'm gonna I'm gonna like go invisible or I'm gonna I'm gonna reveal myself, kill you just long enough to teabag your head. Yeah, yeah. And I'm going to go invisible and teleport somebody else. But yeah, it's just, it's an odd turn for his character. Another thing that was a big part of his character in the first book is, is like you said, his self-sufficiency. And even with, he had like no money, no resources, and he still managed to like crack some of these clues and complete some challenges. In this book, he can't figure out how to complete a challenge and is, he resorts to just throwing money at it by having like a $1 billion reward for anyone who can give him a good clue. And it seems, it seems totally out of character for Wade. Like, why would he ever do that? He was adamant on being like solo running the the mm, holiday yeah. easter egg yep. in the first book and then it, it it took him less than three years to give up and be like whoever can help me out like i'll give you a billion dollars yeah it's 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 so lazy and, it, and i think it's a lazy way to introduce kind of a new group of characters into this which honestly really have like, a big role in this book kind of anyway. makes you wonder why ioi didn't do something like that and just not have all of their numbers all their usernames be their id numbers like why didn't ioi try something like that don't they sort of when they try to recruit Wade to join them? But they try to recruit Wade after he's already learned the first thing. I guess they recruit they never him put, to I, get information. He doesn't yet. ever. Yeah, I don't think he ever really talks about putting a bounty on the on the first key or anything. Either way, that's the first book. I don't want to talk about that one anymore. Right. Um, so we can move on from Wade. Let's talk about our favorite character, H. Oh. Um, easily the most annoying character in this book. I think she is nothing besides a walking, talking representation of, like, the LGBT community. I think, again, this book tricks you into thinking it's very socially aware and very culturally aware. And it, it, it by having characters like this who, like, stand for these things, like, H is a black lesbian. And so the book makes you think that, okay, like, that's a theme in this book. Like, we care about the things that they care about. But they're just attributes of this character. She's not a real character because of these things. Yeah, and and, like, not to say that those traits i mean nobody's saying those traits are bad obviously but it is just it's it's just so cumbersome to the reader who's trying to imagine this world when the way that those parts of her personality and character are presented to you as the reader to give you some kind of idea on what her per, on idea on what her personality is like 
That's what I'm saying. The there way is, that she complains no about yeah, the way that she complains about things just lets you know that she is a black lesbian. They don't talk about like she doesn't have anything good to say about like how that's been for her or good things to say on how we should all treat each other equally. That he never uses her her character as a conduit to be progressive. It's just there for her to like snap her fingers and bob her head sideways and complain about whatever it goes against her character right. traits. No, you're, I think you hit the nail on the head it, that nothing we're just told that that's a part of who she is, but nothing is explored beyond that. And so I'm just like, cool, like black lesbian in your book. My favorite. Uh, I haven't gotten anything out of this character though. One of the silliest ways that I think he uses that is when he's describing how each one of the four remaining high five are using their fortunes to like better the world later on. Yeah. And he talks about how she's using her money to set up like LGBTQ shelters. Right. And that's, all that he writes about what he's doing or what she's doing for the world. And I'm like, dude, you know that that's like a percent maybe of your 10 billion person planet. Like that's as far as you're going to go. You're only going to help the LGBTQs like get a place to stay. And that's great and all, but you're, that's a drop in the bucket. Like you're not really helping the yeah. problem. I, I like, and I, like I said, I, I appreciate the altruistic nature of, I think everyone in the high five, except for Wade, because he's kind of the only one not really doing as much as the other ones. Yeah. But again, it's, it's all just very surface level. It's just, I'm just being told that they, they do kind things. Yeah. But it's just, it's, it feels like it's very surface because it, it really just feels like they just put money at it. And they also admit that it's, it doesn't help anything. Yeah. It doesn't make a difference. And it's like, dude, there's gotta be like, scientists you could be funding for terra like trying to re-terraform the planet or re-establish some atmosphere yeah. around this place so the your global warming is not so bad i mean i get that it's only 20 some years in the future but it's like you're some of the richest people on the planet now you can't get some governments behind you or some scientists behind you to like actually make some a serious dent in this thing which is why it's annoying right that these are like early 20 year old characters who have been handed the fate of the physical planet to some degree and it's oh you're so right yeah. irritating yeah so let's move on uh i made a joke about him earlier saying he's the asian character but let's talk about shoto because again i think he just exists he's forgettable yeah and he only exists to introduce uh like things from japanese pop culture yep. and to have knowledge on something that's japanese i think there's a kind of an interesting thing brought up about him like he he gets married right away he, he wants to start having kids really, uh, really quickly because Japan's population is low. And he has this like sense of duty and responsibility for that. Which is they, cool, but that also doesn't make any sense. If there's 10 billion people on the planet and it's overpopulated, why are some of those people not moving to Japan where there's probably jobs available? If there's a population shortage, there's probably land over there. There's probably housing over there. There's probably job opportunities over there. <laughs> why on a, earth are they not moving over point. to this underpopulated place? <laughs> I didn't even put that together. The planet <laughs> in itself is still overpopulated. Yeah. Shoto should not be pushing out any babies as a 19-year-old or whatever he is. I guess maybe it's just that maybe he, he has a sense of duty to preserve Japanese It culture. is a cool way for, the, for him to write that bit in there to make him seem more honorable. Yeah. And that's great. But well, it does not make any sense. Because the idea was it was like you had that whole generation of kids who basically just like shut, shut themselves, themselves out. Room, yeah, yeah. Didn't experience the world. And so he's like, I want to have kids and have them experience the world and everything. I thought there was like something interesting there. But then it immediately moves on and we kind of get into this like slog of like find the challenge, complete the challenge, rinse, repeat. And just each character happens to have, like, really niche knowledge to solve all of these puzzles. And unfortunately, like, Shoto just falls right into that. He happens to have knowledge on this very specific thing yep. that helps Wade complete a story. And then that's it. Yeah. 
And so I mentioned a little bit about Artemis earlier, kind of altruistic, do-gooder, philanthropist. She's trying to go out and like do the right things. And I think what's really interesting about Artemis is uh, before I started this book, you had texted me and you were like, you're going to hate her. She's, She's the worst. so much worse in this book. She's, it's not that her deeds or her actions are necessarily bad. I think it's, it's her attitude towards the people around her. It's self-righteous personality. It's like, that's what I think like, uh, really grinds my gears about her character. Yeah, it's great that she's like putting her physical body on the line to go to some of these war zones and stuff like that because none of the other people are doing that. I mean, that's fine. And especially somebody who just won the contest, like she's extremely famous and, and that's that's great to get exposure that way because there's probably a lot of people that don't know that and that's fine. It's just her attitude and her self-righteous nature about it and the way that she, the way that she's like condescending and it just comes off kind of hypocritical to me at some points. Like there's times when she's like actively bashing the company on social media and in the news. This is your source of income to help you fix the world. Why are you doing this? Like if you really don't believe in the ONI so much, how have you not sold your shares of GSS to the other three? So that way you don't have to participate in poisoning of the mines or whatever. You're, you're still a bystander of this thing. You're an owner of this company that is peddling this drug that you so hate. Like, so there's still is, just little yeah. hip- hypocritical things about her that I was like, man, you suck. So this is actually what I really like about her is that she is very cautious of the ONI and she is critical of the people who are spending too much time in the Oasis. And she has like real smart ideas like, hey, we don't really know how this affects like children. We should put an age limit on it. Like brains aren't even done developing until like that you're, was, you're 21. That was interesting. And yeah. so... And and they won't even they won't uh, they vote on that and she gets voted out. She's like, okay, well, what about eighteen? Like, let's just try and settle on that. And they still vote against her. And so I actually like that she remains in the company. The best way for her to achieve her goal and try to bring about the change that she wants to, to see say, is to have is a vote. To, is to remain. Yeah. In. So it, I I think she's the only character that's making any sense in this book because all the other characters are kind of really rash and brazen about the O and I, yeah. and they kind of put it out with like. There's no sense of consequence for anything they're doing until we get later in the book where yeah. there finally is consequence. But then it turns out that that consequence is also invisible and empty as well. Right. I just liked for a minute there, I was like, oh, Sam was right. Like, yeah. It was nice to have someone with a voice of reason well, and to have them turn out to be right. And, then, and, it, it, and I agree with you that maybe the, char- the way the character is written makes it kind of annoying that she's right. But I just thought that if you just look at look at her objectively, I really liked everything that she was doing. Yeah. Like she made so much sense to me. Yeah. It is interesting, though, uh, how often in both books, really, they are like, haven't you ever seen a movie before? This is how this normally goes down. And then it happens exactly the way that it happens. And it's like, come on, you even are <laughs> writing, you even talk to each other about, haven't you seen an 80, haven't you seen a, an alien invasion movie before? Haven't you seen a... When a, AI takes and over. When AI takes over movie before? And, and it was funny, too, because when this is all happening, when, like, later on, I was like, oh, my God, it's just like... Like Sword Art Online, this is exactly like what happened in an anime that I watched 15 years ago, or like 10 years ago, yeah. Isn't Sword Art Online referenced in this book? It is, twice. Yeah, Yeah, It is twice, but it's just, it it is a copy and paste of that whole situation where the people going in there get trapped because they're using a brain device, and if they die in the game, they die in real life. Right. But the best thing about that difference between, or the difference between that and this, is the, the bad guy in that killed people and he showed and proved to the rest of them that they were actually dying there were stakes in that book or in that show 
that does not happen in here. Oh yeah, that's you're right. Part of the problem is she's right, but then there's ends up being no consequence. It, it's anyways, it's completely so. deflated. It's completely deflated by the end of the book. Like whatever tension and stress has been built up, I would say like eighty percent of it when he has that last conversation with Anorak is completely deflated. I'm like, well, why did wh- I read this? Why did I read this <laughs> book? So for all the good I think that Samantha has in this book, and she is like really the only real character in this book who has any kind of uh, thought-provoking piece to this novel, she still falls into the same thing where she helps Wade at the end complete the challenges. Everyone is just in the service of Wade in this book. And they were so close to giving her like a real, real story. And then it just didn't happen. And then it just turns out... They forgot. He he forgot that she was there, honestly. Like, he has to. Like, because there's no explanation. We were talking about this before we started recording. There's no explanation for her to not be... There's a part at, where she just disappears. Yeah. She's like, I have to log out and go. There's, well, there's no reason for it's it. It's to go and help prepare the siege on Og's house to go and rescue him later. But then they never do that. And Sam st- or and it's like um, Wade and Sam still have to go and do that later anyway. Like She just spent the whole Prince world gone for no reason. Right. They yeah. all have such a very specific set of skills that are just a perfect tool for the job and it is not fun. It's not fun. Like what if this had happened? What if this hadn't happened in the in the 3 years following the release of the ONI? What if they had all died? What if Shoto had died in a car accident? They never would have completed that challenge. Right. If Sam had died in a car accident, they never would have completed that challenge because I guarantee you she's probably the only one in the whole oasis that completed all the challenges on Arda 1. Like it's just so irritating that convenient. there is yeah. no other person, there's no other group of people who had the skills required to pull this off. And that's like, it's it just makes it convenient and it makes it like a child thought of it. Right. Um, let's talk about other groups that get introduced. Uh, let's talk about Lohengrin and the Low Five. There isn't really much about the whole Low Five. No. But Lohengrin, I thought... It was going to be cool, like have a new character, maybe a new love interest for Wade. And, and just like, as fast as she drama. shows up, what happens? She's just gone. She's just gone again. And, and I was like, cool, a new character playing yeah. a major role. And I thought that there were also interesting concepts explored with her character because it turns out uh, uh, she's trans. Yeah, she was, um, was it de- designated male at birth or whatever is yeah. what he says when he like cyber stalks her. Yeah, which is also just so creepy of Wade. Like, Yeah, c- come on, Wade, stop being creepy. Um, the one thing that disappoints me about extra characters that get added to this book, though, are the people like Sun Wukong, right? Sun Wukong's the Monkey King from Chinese mythology. And guess what Sun Wukong looks like? Just like Sun Wukong. You you have this domain where you can be anything you want. Why wouldn't you make something else up? Why do you... Every single other character in this game is copying something fr- that's already been thought of in the past. You know, like... There, there's like the the Billy was it the Billy Jean character or whatever. I guess the Sun Wukong is the one I can pull up the easiest. It's like instead of you thinking up your own thing, you're going to have this person just duplicate something that was in the past, and it just seems lazy to me. Like you could be whatever you want to be, but no, I'm just gonna be this thing that somebody thought of two thousand years ago, and it just seems lazy to me. And that is Ernest Klein's writing style. He does not have original ideas. He doesn't know how to. He picks at other people's art other people's novels other people's films and then tries to mash them into his own book but he's not original at all and like that's a perfect example of it and we'll get into some more of that when we kind of get into some of the challenges and the worlds we go to but this guy does i mean he does not know how to write anything besides kind of copy paste from from other people's work and yeah like that's a you wrote like sword art online like like you said that's essentially the same story we're going through here basically there's just challenges but there were challenges in there too 
Um, so yeah, we didn't really talk about Halliday in the first one, but yeah, he's the creator of the Oasis. He started making video games with Og. Uh, they founded GSS, and then he ended up creating the Oasis. And then obviously, like that was a huge, a huge thing for the the world and the gaming community as a whole. And we didn't explore him a ton in our first review, besides the fact that he's kind of revered, beloved nerd who created this amazing thing for the world that people really love. And like worshipped by people like Wade, basically. Like he, he writes this book called Anorak's Almanac, and it's essentially like the Halliday's Bible. It's got little quotes from him, and it's written out in chapter and verse format. And it's like what they thought had some clues or whatever for the first book. But yeah, I mean, people really, really... He paints him as like, yeah, basically like worshipped by people yeah, in the nerd first god. One. Yeah, like, um, absolutely. And that's that's I think that's fine to have a character that really doesn't exist a ton in the first book, and to have basically just like kids and their perception of him. I think it's fine to have like kind of this like beloved character. But then I said I kind of compare him and Wade as kind of mirroring each other. There's a big reveal that Halliday has been essentially a giant creep this whole time. He, I think, creates the O and I essentially to create a digital copy of Kira, who is Og's wife, who has passed away, who he had feelings for. He essentially is just trying to create a version of her that he can seduce and fall in love with and have in the Oasis. This yeah. is a complete departure from anything we've seen or heard about um, Halliday in the first Yeah, book. I mean, so to be fair, they do talk about him being very, very socially inept and awkward. So he's a, a, a brilliant game designer and a, a, you know, whatever, programming specialist or whatever he was, like, that he was good, but... He definitely, they definitely talk about the flaws that he has. and But never like malicious. No, 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 no. Know. He was just, he was just weird. And I'm sure that he thought at the beginning when he really probably believed that he could make himself a copy that would love him. Kira's like, yeah, when he found out that the copy he made of me was just as in love with Og as the day he scanned my brain, like he realized what he had done. And no, they definitely paint him as this weird creeper who is like, yeah, <laughs> I don't. I weird. Don't, like yeah, a I brain rapist is what exactly. they paint him like. I put a uh, he he performs the first act of digital kidnapping and imprisonment. Yeah, basically. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's just there's nothing in the first book that would suggest that he had like this big skeleton in his closet like no. this. And it's part of my problem with the first book is it feels like Ernest Klein know where he he knew where he wanted it to end, didn't know how to get it there. So he knew he wanted to have this kind of conflict in the end with Kira and Halliday and kind of his realization that what he had done was wrong. He has invaded her privacy, removed any sense of autonomy from her, and he's realized that that's wrong. And his redemption is to create a challenge to then put the responsibility on someone else yeah, that, to there absolve is, him of his sin. There is no redemption arc for him, so he's this great guy, and then they paint him like this huge villain, this just super cyber rapist to Kira. And then... Yeah, the redemption is to creating the thing, creating the contest so somebody else can choose whether he was right or wrong. That's not good. It's not a redemption That's story. not good. Yeah. No, he's still a creeper. Yeah. I'm just going to do the best with this new technology as I can and hold on to it for a while because humanity's not ready. Like, you're still a creeper. There's no redemption in there. So what, you told the digital version of the human being you copied that you were sorry? Like, that's not good enough, dude. That's not good enough of a redemption. His change from who he is in the first book mm -hmm. to who he is in this, it's not earned. Yeah. And it's not it's not clever. 
I don't get anything out of it except that I feel like there's just no continuity between these characters, which is unfortunate. There was a little bit of mystery in trying to figure out like how he was getting these because for the first little while I was like, man, is he like really does he like really know her this well that he was like programming these things? Like created the. It, it didn't occur to me until like later that he had actually scanned her. Oh yeah. Okay. I did have one thing that I wanted to try to flesh out real fast. Why on earth didn't Halliday try to fix the planet? He had the money before Wade and all the rest of them did. He actually had it all. It wasn't split up four ways. So why on earth did he not try to fix the planet? Because he doesn't care. I think there's quotes from him saying that he doesn't find the real world to be a very interesting place. Well, that, yeah. That he, he likes being in a video game. And that's so true. He just doesn't care. Well, when the planet's dead, nobody's going to be around to be in your stupid video game genius. Yeah. No, he's he's not. But Like you said, like he is socially inept. Yeah. He, he doesn't pick up on those cues. And so it kind of makes sense that... I guess in a, in a little way, it, it's maybe kind of altruistic of him to be aware that, like, hey, I don't have, like, the bandwidth to solve these problems. So when I die, I'm hopefully someone else who does care will take over yeah. and use these this this fortune and these means to do the right thing. It seems odd that you would have a socially inept person be so self-aware, though. Yeah, you're right. I, I don't, again, this isn't a good book. So <laughs> I'm trying to fix problems that I know exist. Oh, and I'm I, trying to bring up yeah. every problem I can. And, and the only way I can, I just need to go through the rationale in my own head to try and solve like my problems with the book because, <laughs> because otherwise this is, it's totally unreadable. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. If I can't go through and try to figure out like, okay, how Maybe do I, he was like this. Yeah. yeah. How, do, how do I make up my own reason to fix Ernest Klein's problems? Sure. You know? Ooh, that's nice. So let's move on to, I think, kind of the last big character we want to introduce is uh, Anorak, which is a AI digital version of Halliday, who we, we've been introduced to in the first book. He, he's like a non-playable character who kind of shows up and he still has those like powerful robes that he ends up transferring over to Wade after the completion of the contest. Yeah, so he's essentially um, Halliday's NPC that was given certain programming and instructions and ways to act in the event that he died. And there comes to be that part um, right after he gives Wade the robes and all the juice and the, he wins the egg um, where he was supposed to, to delete himself. And he just decided he didn't want to do that. In that split second, he says, I just didn't do that. And that is literally all the explanation we get. It's not like any cool, even just like techno babble. There was a bug in his program. He was like, no, I as this AI just chose not to do that. And there, there the third tier of AI was born. It's like, yeah. no, that's not how programming works, dude. It was just so convenient. He's just like, yeah, I just didn't feel like being dead. Yeah. And then I stayed alive and that was it. And now I'm here. Now I'm the villain, which also you didn't need to be there, guy. You could have just asked for help. Yeah. So that's one of my big problems with him is he, he ends up kind of showing up as this big threat. Um, He's holding a huge population of the world as as uh, as hostages, and he basically says he has the means to to destroy them all and kill them all because he's uploaded kind of this malware into the Oasis and into the ONI headsets. But then it all kind of turns out that this character has no teeth. He was never going to do it. He always had these these safeties in place to not really allow it to yeah. happen. He and admits just, at the very end that he was never going to do that. Everyone's just in this comfortable sleep like state. It's like, wait, so. So who was the bad guy this whole time? Who, why on earth was I limited to this time constraint? There's so many things too that that character does that are so that don't make any sense. Like, you know who you know who the real bad guy is in this? Ernest Klein. 
the real enemy in this book is toxic masculinity. Yeah. Because, <laughs> and common sense. Because that's what Ray, Wade represents and yeah. it's what Halliday represents. Yeah. And I think that's, I think if you really try to piece it out, like that's the real message. That, that's to what this I'm saying, book. dude. He, he, you can tell he wrote this book in 2020. Yeah. Oh, you yeah. can absolutely tell he wrote this book in 2020. These are not the same characters that he wrote in 2011. No, not at all. Um, and I think that's the real enemy of this book is, yeah. is toxic, what you say, yeah. to- toxic Dang. masculinity. If only I wasn't uh, so white and had that thing between <laughs> my legs. Um, but so he does this, he does this one thing. Like I, I've got to talk about a couple of these things cause I wrote so many things. So there's a part when they, uh, because at this point Og has found two or three of the shards and they ask Anorak for help. Well, he's like, no, I'm not going to do that. Where's the fun in that? Okay. Well, he's already constrained them they think to their 12 hours, right? Like they're already an hour or so into it. There's they th- a, yeah, there's a they think they only on have this. They think like, they only have 11 hours left before their 12 hours hit. Otherwise they might die. They might go into this coma. Um, he doesn't know, they don't know if he's going to keep them clocked in for past 12 hours. So they start getting SOS. And there's supposed to be real stakes to this. And part, he's like, yeah. no, no, um, I wouldn't tell you even if I knew it. So it's like he wants this item, but he, and he has information that would help them succeed in getting him what he wants. And he's still just for the sake of him being, like you said it earlier, the, the little twirly mustache Mustaches enemy twirling villain, yeah. villain guy, he's going to be like, no, I wouldn't help you anyway. And then even before that, he talks about how he's run millions and millions of simulations. It's the whole Doctor Strange thing from the Infinity Wars where he's like, this is the one that's most likely to succeed. So you're telling me that when you ran these simulations, the one that was the most likely to succeed, where you were going to be a barrier to your own success and not share information to the people you were you were trying to help? Oh yeah, no, that makes no sense. It doesn't make any sense. And then and then Samantha jumps out of the plane. You're telling me that your one in a bajillion odds shot of succeeding involved her jumping out of the plane? If Calvin were here, he would say that. So like a zero sum game is. One where you succeed if you are working together with the other people and if you're sharing as much information as possible, that's how you win the game, which is it just the exact opposite of how this the works. The exact so, opposite of how it happens. Yeah. He he is is demanding the success of this. Like he's holding everybody hostage and making it sound like he's gonna kill everybody if he doesn't succeed. And he gives and he gives them a time limit. But then he doesn't help, he doesn't offer help, he actively refuses to help. There's there's no reason for Anorak has an army of minions later on. There's no reason in the world why he shouldn't be trying to help them. I, I Other than to just be yeah. the little twisty mustache villain guy and yeah. not help them. I had a note that I think if he had just shown up to the high five, explained what had happened with Kira, explained that this is like his end goal and kind of been, uh, been more Halliday about it instead of like creepy weird Anorak about it, you probably just convinced the high five to help you. To me, that like just the way these characters are set up, I think there's a, a higher chance of them being altruistic and just doing what they think is good, rather than like this really weird contrived challenge yeah. where they're where they're handcuffed and hamstringed their whole way. There through was it. no reason for them to be put up against this timeline in order to like force their success or anything like that. And like, I guess to be fair, the probably the reason why that wouldn't have happened again, trying to fix his problems, is because he he removed a lot of Anorak's memories, which was what corrupted him in the first place. Had he not done that he might have been more holiday about it like you say if he had just been more holiday about it and asked that might be one thing but if he was really holiday he would have stuck to the plan and waited for somebody who hopefully had a better mind and a purer heart 
to make the decision for him so Halliday didn't have to do it. I suppose you're right. I forgot about the memory thing. So he's essentially not really Halliday. He's not really he's, Halliday. He's, he's missing, he's missing memories. Parts. Okay. Yeah. That's a good point then. Still, it doesn't... I don't like the idea of him just being... Adding hurdles for the sake of it's, it. It's, it's, it's adding hurdles for hurdles' sake. He's not a good bad guy because you find out he's about as much of a bad guy as like a inflated pink balloon is a bad guy. Like it doesn't... Nothing happens. He wasn't going to do anything. He admits it. So now it's like... There's no consequence. It's yeah. like it's like when I played, um, and then this is going to be a spoiler alert, but this game's been out for a while. When you play Jedi Fallen Order, right, you spend your entire time going to try to find the holocron that has the location of the rest of the Jedi, right? Right. So once you're done with the game and you find the item you've spent, you as the player has spent hours looking for, overcoming whatever obstacles you, based on your skill level you had to overcome, what does he do with the item? He cuts it into pieces before he even uses it. And I was like... What on earth was the point of the last 18 hours of my life? Doesn't he just say, like, we'll just trust the force? We'll trust the force. And it just <laughs> doesn't... so bad. That kind of a thing doesn't make any sense. Like, when you totally, like you say, declaw or defang your villain at the end and you deflate every every threat he ever made, you immediately null and void it. What what, what did I just read? Yeah. Why? Yeah, why was I, I a part of this? Why did I spend 20 hours on Nothing this? was going to happen. <laughs> yeah, right. No, I, I think it's, it's frustrating... He doesn't exist in this book in a very valuable way. No, no. He's there to be a bad guy because he thinks there needs to be a villain. Instead of making a new villain, like, uh, this is an attempt to make a new villain, I guess, but it's just, he's not a good villain. He's he's not a good villain. If right. Thanos was like, haha, I just wanted to collect these things, I was never really going to snap my fingers. Ha ha ha. you. Tricked you. <laughs> like, what what kind of a lame movie would that have been if oh, he hadn't succeeded? It would have been terrible. You know what I'm saying? All right, and with that, we're going to close out part one of our two-part review and discussion of Ready Player Two. Uh, please go check out Dad by Day, Gamer by Night's uh, channel on YouTube. He's got great gaming content. Loved having him on the podcast, and this is a really fun collaboration to do with him. And remember, you can find our podcast on uh, any platform like Spotify or Apple Music. Uh, we're also on like uh, Amazon Podcasts. We also upload all these to YouTube, so leave a comment, tell us what we're doing well, tell us what we're doing wrong. And with that, thank you for listening to Now This Is Podcasting. <laughs>